All right, welcome to the New England Lean Podcast, uh, day two of the GBMP Northeast Lean Conference, and I'm honored, truly, to have Stephen Spear. Hello, oh. sir, how are you? I'm doing well, glad to be here, and thanks for making time for me. No, thank you, I mean, you. Um, I posted on LinkedIn, and I know we've been connected a long time, but I posted a video on LinkedIn on my bookcase, I don't know, months and months ago, and all of a sudden in my inbox, I get a, a, a LinkedIn message from you. And you're like, hey, I love the video. How about I send you one of my books? Because you picked up on the fact that I didn't have it already. <laughs> That's right. So thank you very much. I, I think I hope I said thank you. If I didn't before, thank you very much. You're quite it's welcome. much appreciated. Yep. So you opened today with the opening keynote. I was there, thankfully, because I don't doing this here at the show. I didn't always get to uh, see everything, but I made time because I knew I wanted to see you. So nice right. job. You knocked it out of the park. Oh, thank you very much. Um, one thing I did want to ask. Yes. You made a point uh, this morning that that I picked up on and resonated, and that was when you started talking about standardization. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to pick your brain a little bit. If you could expand upon what your you know kind of what your thoughts and feelings are on that. Sure. So uh, I think this morning I used the uh, the idea of standardization to um, kind of drill into two really antagonistic views of management. So one view of management is that um, there's some select chosen elite that has wisdom and uh, no one else does. And uh, not only don't they have wisdom, but they don't have uh, discipline or a sense of responsibility. Uh, it, it, it's worse than childlike. It, 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 it's, a, it's, it's like immaturity, but even worse. Hmm. And that view of management, which unfortunately is a popular view of management, then has it that uh, this uh, wise, well-motivated elite should create standards for um, what the rest of us should do. And that, again, because uh, we're not curious and we're not motivated, uh, nor are we terribly responsible, you know, air quotes around all of this, that uh, the job of management then becomes to uh, instruct us what to do, monitor us that we're doing it properly, audit us, et cetera, et cetera, and measure us in terms of our ability to comply with the standard. Um, and then, of course, when there are problems, and inevitably there are problems, the uh, blame is on the individual, again, for not being wise enough, mature enough, responsible enough, caring enough, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one view. And <laughs> Just to be clear, that's a view of management I wholly reject. Right. Um, it's dehumanizing, it's insulting, it's cruel. The alternative view is that um, everyone has intelligence, everyone has the potential to be creative if given up the opportunity. And not only that, in the moment is there a tremendous uh, reservoir of intellectual horsepower in an organization. There's a whole history of experiences which can inform, if we're um, humble enough and curious enough, there's a whole host of uh, experiences others have had which can inform what we do in the moment. If we take that view, that uh, individually we all can be creative and we can also tap into what's already been experienced, then we go ahead and we start creating standards, which is the harnessing the focusing down to the moment of use. The collective output of the creative efforts of many, many people. So that's already an elevating idea, right? Because it's acknowledging the value of what's been done in the past and it's acknowledging the potential of what's happening in the moment. 
they take that one step further, then um, what is the job of a manager? The job of a manager is not to do the creation offline of a standard and insist upon its application. The job of a manager is to develop other people in their capacity to create standards, uh, tap the past for lessons, and otherwise develop people in terms of their ability to tap into their innate potential to do something valuable that others would appreciate. So you take that one step further then, um, someone is doing work and inevitably there's a problem, what does a manager do then? The manager comes over and the question is not about what did you, Paul, do wrong in terms of using the standard. Again, because that old other school of management has it that you're not smart enough, you don't care enough, you're not diligent enough, et cetera, et cetera. It's what's wrong with the standard, mm -hmm. which is what is it about this moment in which you're existing, in which you're experiencing, what is it about this moment that we fail to understand that when we handed you this standard, we thought that this standard was uh, something which would be adequate, reliable for the moment, and it isn't. And so what that does, invite all of us to be self-reflective in terms of what didn't we understand, what is new in terms of our perception of it, and then that triggers us to be additionally creative. So anyway, long and short, this idea of a standard, it's a very simple term, and it's uh, widely used. But in the extreme, it means wildly, wildly different things in terms of our view of ourselves, our view of others. And from a very practical perspective, um, the two different approaches to standards, this uh, condescending version versus the, this elevating one, they have very different outcomes in practice where the elevating one consistently leads to much better outcome, outcomes than the condescending one. Mm -hmm. And so, I obviously, I agree with everything you said. And that's why when you mentioned that same thing this morning, it resonated because in my work history, certainly, and it's shameful to admit, um, but, you know, predominantly, it's the former and not the latter. Where it's, yes. well, why can't you just, it's written down, just do it the way I told you. And I've had these conversations even with manufacturing engineers that I either worked with or worked for me and they would get frustrated sometimes. They said, well, I spent all this time writing it down. Why don't people just read what I wrote and do it that way? And I said, well, for one, you know, and I, and thankfully I get smarter over the years. Uh, so I eventually get to the point where I say, well, for one, you wrote it. They didn't write it. Right. So did you ask them? I mean, what you might be asking here is physically impossible. And they, you know, most of the time I could get through to folks and start moving them toward the latter version right. of how you described it. 100%. Um, yeah, so the person who actually has to use a standard, first of all, they're an individual with their own idiosyncratic capabilities, limitations, etc. The environment, the moment in which they have to act, also has its own idiosyncrasies. To expect that um, a third party remotely could fully understand adequately uh, the combination of idiosyncratic capabilities and idiosyncratic demands, it's kind of preposterous when you say it out loud. What that does invite is the expert to come in 
not as um, delivering as if in the mail, a sealed envelope of instruction, but showing up with a, um, a healthy energetic curiosity about the capabilities in the situation, um, an energetic ability to engage and co-create. Uh, th this is not to say that, oh, you know, the workforce knows all the answers. Again, that gets a little condescending because if they know all the answers, why are they doing the wrong thing? Why are you having problems? Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, I think, um, the, look, experts have expertise, it should be acknowledged. That said, experts may not necessarily have expertise about everything, that's impossible. And uh, if that's the case, then there's this issue of engaging the person um, in this situation. Now, you pointed about this, uh, reminds me of um, parent-teacher conferences, where once we went, we're talking to a teacher and said, oh, I was so surprised uh, the students did so poorly on my exam. I wonder why that is. Mm. I should have maybe kept this to myself. I said, well, there's a few possibilities here, <laughs> but very high on the list are you taught the wrong thing or you taught it in the wrong way. Yep. Um, that's why they did poorly on the exam. Right. Yeah, anyway, that didn't I, go over as well <laughs> as one might have thought. Shocking. Although, I'll be honest, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, we have, I have two daughters, we have two daughters, and um, last year our, our oldest one was a sophomore in high school. Oh, great. And uh, she, do, she does very well in school, I mean, and I tell her this all the time, I'm like, you put too much pressure on yourself, but she's like, you know, she's all about, right, she wants to do really well. Good for which, her. Right, which I encourage. So anyways, um, she basically had all A's, except there was this one class. And as a, you know, as a lean thinker, an engineer, you look at this and you're like, well, I have seven data points and they're all you know, 95 and above. Right. And then there's another data point, it's at an, like an 83. Yeah. And it, I had the same conversation and it's, it went over similarly, probably worse than yours. Because I said, look at this data set. Right. You tell me what sticks out here. Right. What's the common, the com you know, it's not my daughter, you know, right, and that right. didn't, again, I, I probably approached it in a different, you know. Uh, yeah but still. Well, look, you, you got sucked into that un undoubtedly because the teacher probably um, said, oh, well, your, your, your daughter's not good at this topic, and you probably got triggered to be a little defensive, protective, yeah. right thing to do. Um, whereas, uh, ideally, that put a person would have looked and said, geez, that's interesting, you know, straight A's across the board except uh, my class, B or C or whatever it was. I wonder what it is about this material and again, the idiosyncrasies of the capabilities. What is it about the student that the way I'm teaching this material is not landing well with her as she learns? Now, where one would like that to happen is that um, a teacher have curiosity and maybe talk to other teachers and you know, uh, well, work from the inside out. Start with the student and better understand the student as a learner. Um, maybe um, converse with colleagues and understand that student as a learner. Uh, maybe there's a um, a dean whose responsibility is to look across the various subjects to the experience of students, the holistic experience of students, who starts asking, "Geez, that's interesting. You know, six A's and a C. You know, what's going on here?" Unfortunately, that's not the experience you had of that level of curiosity working from the inside out and the top down. Instead, it was like, "Well, it's clearly the problem is your daughter." Yeah, and that's, you're right, and I knew, honestly, I knew going in it wasn't going to end the way I would really hope, but I, I sort of went in under that premise of trying to make a point. Because, again, I'll, I'll relate it back to industry. You know, why, you know, as lean thinkers, we would never 
propose to say, well, this is the system, you plug into the system, and that's just the way it is. You know, we want, right? The whole, the whole purpose of developing standardization is, a, is having a baseline, but that baseline then gets improved upon. Yep. Versus like the Henry Ford version of, you know, why is it every time I hire a pair of hands, it comes with a brain attached, yeah. you know? But in that particular situation, that was more of what the message was, was I teach the way I teach, and the, this it's just tough, too right. bad. And it's like, that's sort of wrong, but you know, again, I, you know, I stubbed my toe hard enough that they didn't want to listen to that. No. And, and even had I, you know, perfectly lined it up, I still don't know if it would have gone that way. But it is interesting, I won't use that as an, an example, it is interesting that there are still sometimes folks, whether in a public school system or in industry or an office, anywhere, that still, yeah, I don't know, can't, don't see it that way that, you know, we are talking about it? Yeah, it's, a, it's unfortunate in that we um, have a, uh, how to put this, we should have a developmental mindset. Um, a developmental mindset, I mean, is that there's a situation which, whatever its current condition, it can be made better if we understand it well. Um, a developmental mindset requires a tremendous amount of curiosity. And particularly if we're responsible for that situation, not only does it require curiosity, it also requires a tremendous amount of humility and non-defensiveness because if the situation is not working and it's our situation, then um, we have to admit to ourselves that somehow there's something we did to create this uh, non-working condition. Um, in the moment, at least, it's easier not to do that and to say, uh, well, I'm not going to be curious, I'm going to be evaluative. And uh, the situation gets graded if it's uh, good, bad, one, zero, um, A, B, C, whatever else it is, and that allows us to uh, one, not force ourselves to be um, curious, we're just screening, and also it doesn't require us to be humble because now the fault is on the situation for being a C or a zero, um, and it's not on us for creating conditions in which the situation has to be um, a zero or a C and otherwise fail. Mm -hmm. So. One last question, and then I'll, I promise I'll leave you alone. Cause we're, I know, I, I promised you we were only going to be here for like 10 or 15 minutes. And I know it's been our, I know, it, and I suckered you in, so I got you on that one. Not at but all. But I could have you, I mean, we consider all afternoon. Um, so, in your book, right, it's right next to me here. Yes. So it's called The High Velocity Edge. Yes. Right? And it's pretty, it's, it's a hefty book. It's 350, 60 pages Something long. Something like that. Yeah, right? So I know, and I know I'm putting you on the spot, so I'll apologize in advance. What is, what, what, you, what do you hope that is a, at least one takeaway of somebody oh. who's read your book or, or picks up? Because I've, now full disclosure, our tables are right next to each other. Right. So we've been together for two days, well, next to each other for two days. Yes. And I've watched you give away, give away, I don't know how many of these books. So I'm, uh, it's touching to see you do that uh -huh. because I mean, you could easily be over here and charge, you know, show, you know, like, hey, get, you know, show pricing or whatever, right. but you're not, you're giving these things away. So I give you all the credit in the world for doing that. Well, I don't know how much credit I, I deserve. Um, to understand, the book has a lot of pages, Mo mostly it's examples. Mm -hmm. And the reason it has so many examples is that if, uh, 
I give an example from autos and someone says, I don't make cars. Well, there's an example from aeronautics. And someone says, well, I don't make airplanes. There's an example from aluminum. If they say, I don't make aluminum, there's an example from healthcare. It's layer upon layer upon layer of, of example. And the way I said it sounded a little bit cynical that I'm trying to get past people's sort of uh, um, innate desire to reject things. But the, the point of the examples is to say, look, if this situation, which most people don't consider similar to that situation, if the same principles work, mm -hmm. then maybe there's something about these principles that have a broader and broader application than being specific to a, a particular um, sector, a particular industry, a particular phase of value creation, you know, like uh, discovery, research development, so on and so forth. So that, that's why the book is, is uh, so many pages. The other is that the publisher did a nice job of using very nice typeface, lots of space. It's very easy to read. Mm. Um, just visually, it's very easy to read. But to the point of what's in there, so the reason for the title, The High Velocity Edge, what we were trying to do when we did this research going back now, you know, 20 some odd years, is uh, explain a paradox. How is it that um, you have these sectors with organizations, and those organizations have access to the same resources, science, technology, workforce, materials, et cetera, and they're competing to meet the needs of the same marketplace, but some not only are more successful, they're consistently more successful. I mean, it's clearly not luck. You know, it, well, it'd be like flipping a coin and getting heads 32 times in a row, all right? At some point you say there's something about the coin. Right. Um, it's so far out the realm of normal probability. So anyway, we said, well, what's going on there? And the answer was, across the board with these 350 pages of examples, they have um, created management systems which make it far easier for individuals and collections of individuals to collectively, collaboratively learn through the mechanisms of seeing problems, swarming onto them to solve them, and then systematizing what's been learned by sharing uh, those discoveries. And in terms of the real meat of the book, I, we, we once did this, it fits on an index card. You know, We have a paradox, superior sustained performance, um, the source of that paradox, take all these other things off the table because everyone has access to the same things. The only thing left is the learning dynamic. And how do you establish that learning dynamic? Basically convert everything into an opportunity for fast, frequent feedback that triggers you to dive in, learn more, and get better. There you to, go. To the point about why give it away. Look, I've been um, wildly fortunate in terms of having access to people who are wildly creative and thinking through this um, age-old problem of how to manage others in a productive and respectful fashion. Uh, there were the folks at Toyota. I had a mentor, the late Hajime Oba, Alcoa. Um, I had a mentor, and I, I, I think I can claim friendship based on a 20-year relationship with uh, Paul O'Neill, former Secretary of the Treasury. Um, I had a mentor in Clay Christensen also, uh, who's uh, since passed, and um, learned a ton from them. And so to be in a situation like this, an open-minded audience, you know, like-minded uh, community to share what I've had opportunity to learn, that, that, that's not generous at all. That's just sort of uh, obligation, I think. Mm. Fair, that's very fair. But, but Thank you again for, and thank you for sharing. You know, because again, you've been here for a couple of days, and you spoke this morning. And like I said, and the only reason I mentioned, I mean, it's a hardcover, three hundred fifty page book. I mean, it's one thing to give away a, you know, a, a seventy five page thing, but this is it's substantial. So thank you, on behalf of 
you know, the listenership and me to that you share all of these lessons. And I love the way you put it. Because I see it again, even because in you know, my real life, I'm a, a lean consultant. We right. have clients that do all kinds of different things. But we still hear, it's 2021, it's almost 2022, I still hear that um, objection. Well, isn't this only for high volume and we don't make cars, we make you right. know, widgets or we do this out of the other thing, where a job shop is a popular one. Because yeah. you know, here in this greater Springfield area, there's a lot of tier one, tier two aerospace manufacturers that are anywhere from 15 to 35 people. And sometimes they look at me and think there's no way and I'm like, right. well, tell you what, let's go down the street because we have a client down there and I'll show you how we tripled their production by right. doing these types of things. That's right. So I think the, uh, the pushback you get is from people who understand lean without understanding it anywhere near as fully as this community does, which is it's um, based on the Toyota production system, but really is the management, and that's really what it is. It's based on the management system which is well-tuned to tapping into people's innate ability to be creative and productive. When you start thinking about that way, and that people's creativity is reflected in terms of what they discover, the realization that something is problematic is a discovery. The um, uh, understanding how to contain that is a discovery. The resolution of it is certainly a discovery. That this is all about creating the conditions, the behaviors, the norms, the mechanisms by which people can be creative that way, then it's not specific to a situation of high volume, low volume, high variety, low variety, it doesn't matter. And in the book, and again, back to the why the book is what it is, is we've got examples in there of um, manufacturing a Toyota, uh, but design a Toyota, uh, providing healthcare, uh, designing jet engines, um, inventing, um, uh, you know, electronic advertising. I, th these things are so different by sector, by technology, by science, by uh, phase and understanding. The commonality is that there was opportunity individually and collectively for people to learn more. And certain organizations uh, took approaches that let them learn a lot more, a lot faster. And, and again, the, the, the title of the book, The High Velocity Edge, what's the velocity? It's the learning velocity, which then gets expressed in the creation, the delivery of the, you know, products, services, uh, experiences, the, um, the the velocity of new useful things learned which get expressed through what's delivered into the marketplace. Yep, right. Not necessarily just speed of product or service through that's right. whatever system we have. Yeah, and you know, and, and Paul, that, that's a really good point because the, the term lean itself has suffered that um, that misinterpretation. So the term lean comes out of a, a paper written in 1988 by this guy, John Krafzik, who mm -hmm. was a, a graduating graduate student at MIT. And his thesis was um, a comparative study of the world's final assembly plans. And what he came to this realization that of the 186 or so there were, that most had a similar profile or a similar set of trade-offs in terms of quality, productivity, agility, economies of scale, et cetera, et cetera. And he found there was this small number, some handful, which their quality was higher, their productivity was better, their agility was uh, better, and they got achieved all this at much lower economies of scale. Basically, to the extent that they were dealing with trade-offs, it was a much, much more favorable trade-off curve. And so uh, 
this uh, fellow John Krafsik, he needed to label this phenomenon of being able to do so much more with so much less effort. And so, since he was looking at the auto industry, and the auto industry was the, uh, the exemplar of mass production, you know, John fell onto this, well, if that's mass production, this is lean, the, mm -hmm. the doing more with less. Uh, the, the key point of this is that lean was the outcome of a certain set of behaviors. But what got misinterpreted by many is that lean wasn't the outcome, lean was the decision that we're going to have fewer people, we're going to have fewer machines, we're going to have less inventory, but we're not going to change the social overlay by which we integrate the efforts of many individuals towards common purpose. So not surprisingly, when lean is done that way, Lean is the decision variable versus the outcome variable. It's uh, it's oppressive, it's mean, it's stressful, it's uh, disorienting. And look, look I, I, I have you know students, clients, etc. And you ask, uh, you know, raise the hands. Who's uh, experienced lean? A lot of hands go up. Now keep your hands up if uh, experiencing lean was a good experience for you. Mm. Hands go down. Yeah. Why is that? Because uh, they unfortunately were subject to management thought of the leaning of a process as uh, what you do as opposed to the leaning of the process as the consequence of all these other things that you do. Right, right. And yeah, I teach, you know, I talk about that because I've uh, met Jim Womack a, yep. a couple of times and heard him speak and even, you know, I think the last time I heard him speak uh, probably a few years ago now, but he, he brought that up. He's like, yeah, you know, I wish we kind of hadn't used that word. And a lot of times in our workshops, I'll say, I'll just say the word lean. Don't try to guess what I'm trying to get right. you to say. What? Just tell me what comes to your mind. Almost every single time, somebody does say, do more with less, trim the fat, skinny, right? Something, something about shrinkage. Yeah, you know, it, it's a great point. You know, you, you mentioned trim the fat. It's kind of like, you know, if we use that for people and say, how does one become lean? Well, you know, some combination of diet, exercise, if there's other conditions, maybe some medication, whatever else. But it's about changing the inputs and changing the behaviors. Mm. And then the, the lean is the consequence, right? As opposed to liposuction, <laughs> which is, well, how do I become lean? I cut away the fat. Right. Um, you know, or, or, or you know, some kind of intervention like that. The problem is those, uh, those um, don't change the behavior. And in not changing the behavior, uh, they're not enduring. <laughs> they're, they're, they're painful in the moment, and they certainly don't endure in the effect. Right, and that's, you know, it's an interesting, I, I know there's people here that I know want to see you, so I'll leave you be, but that's an, I've never used that analogy, but I might start. Yeah. Right, because if you don't change the underlying behavior, right. of, you know, in that, then you're going to go back to your bad habits, you're going to gain that weight back, and you're, and just like with, you know, fake lean, it's the same kind of a thing. Right, you can look great, but yeah. it's, it's not going to sustain. That's right, that's right. It's, uh, do you have, healthful living and healthful outcomes, or do you have unhealthful living and then have to intervene in this very intrusive way to give the appearance mm. of health, and, and again, it's the only appearance, the appearance of healthful outcomes. Mm. And I think we all understand from experience and the logic that we really have to go with the hard work, but go with the healthful living to get the real rewards of healthful outcomes. Right. Well, Steve, thank you so much. And I'm so glad we finally get to meet in person and hang out and chat Absolutely. a little bit. So, yeah. Uh, so. And, and Paul, let me, let me return the, uh, the thanks and the compliment is that, um, you know, because you mentioned my giving the books away, I mean, you're spending a lot of time 
getting a lot of points of view from a lot of people to share with an audience that might benefit from it. And that is certainly an act of uh, sort of selfless service so to take uh, the wisdom and the thoughts and the ideas that are being shared here in person over a day or two and sharing it with a much broader audience over in a much, enduring, much more enduring fashion. So uh, compliments to you too. Well, thank you very much. It means a lot coming from you, Steve. Thank uh, you. You're welcome. All right. Well, have a great rest of the show, even though there's not that much left, but uh, we got fantastic. a little bit. That's right. And uh, as a, a board member of the Greater Boston Manufacturing Partnership, to anyone who's listening, I do encourage you, if you missed this year, to uh, show up or tune in for next year, because it's always a great experience. It's awesome. And I love the fact that they move it around New England, too. Yep. So. That's right. All right, Steve, I'll let you go. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the time. All righty. Yep. Bye.